was an army chaplain. My soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could with things I picked up along the way. They also called me Padre. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I try to take the issues of the day and address them as best I can. And today, we're answering a couple questions. One is, you know, is Jezebel a feminist icon? Is Jezebel that? And also, what is God noticing here on earth? What does God see? And then a a third section, or second section, on the cross, the true cross, and our relationship to it today. In yesterday's reading, we see the full evil of Ahab's kingdom becoming very personal for certain people in the land. Ahab wanted a vineyard. He's despondent that he can't have it. He's the king after all. Shouldn't he be able to have whatever he wants? His wife, Jezebel, says, you know, there's a way to get this vineyard. If somebody is condemned to death, you can confiscate their property. Similar to the way um, many times uh, law enforcement in this country will confiscate property if someone who uh, has been convicted of some other crime, sometimes this is legal, sometimes it is not. Um, We recall the Pflugerville police uh, SWAT teams that were stealing things from people's houses. Um, This is sort of an age-old problem, and it goes back here to Ahab, that if someone's condemned to death, you can take their stuff um, as the king. And so they conspire Jezebel and Ahab to accuse Naboth falsely of a crime. They hire two sons of worthlessness. They're called scoundrels. Hard to know what's an equivalent term for today. Uh, people that are willing for money to, uh, to falsely accuse someone in court under oath. And they do this. Naboth is stoned for treason against the king and against God and blasphemy and a number of other things. And so Ahab gets his vineyard, waltzes right in, takes it over. And this is where Elijah comes to Ahab and says, because you did this and all the other stuff you've done, um, God is going to cut off your line of succession. Um, We wonder what motivated people in the olden days, um, why they did what they did. Uh, One of the ways to look at it is very different from American culture, and maybe not that different from American culture, but maybe at least on the surface. A lot of people in history, um, especially men in power, were acting on their own legacy. They're acting to shore up their legacy. Not just kings, but you can look at um, rich and powerful people from all over um, history and say, why did they do what they did? Well, they were trying to preserve their legacy, not just for them, but for the generations to come, to build a literal property, a castle or a house that will withstand the generations. Um, In America, we sort of do this with digital numbers in banks and stock options and things. That's our sort of legacy we hand down as just a digital money thing, (laughs) if we can or do. Um, Most of us don't in America. We don't hand on those sort of things. to start this dynasty behind us. But um, 
this was something that you could do through tangible property um, in this time. And so Ahab is doing this. He's very concerned about his legacy, his children. And so this curse that is the curse that Jeroboam got and others, that the line of succession will be cut off, is a really scary one for Ahab. Um, The prophecy that the dogs will lick up your blood the way they licked the blood up of Naboth. Um, Naboth died by stoning, a particularly cruel form of execution. Um, How many rocks does it take to kill someone Um, is sort of the old question with that. And it's pretty brutal and there's a lot of blood. And this is where the dogs come in. These are not pets. These are dogs that sort of roam the streets. They are a symbol of corruption, a symbol of evil, a symbol of, of scandal in many ways in the Bible. And so they show up to take care of the mess. And this is what's going to happen to the king of Israel. He's going to have these dogs come and lick his blood up in the streets. And then his wife, Jezebel, is also going to be um, consumed in this way. This is the prophecy. Jezebel is often seen as a feminist icon in America today and maybe around the world. I don't know. There's at least one magazine named after her that um, promotes um, causes that relate to women and women's empowerment. Um, other women scholars, um, other than myself, I am not a woman and not a scholar, but um, other women scholars that I read have made it very clear that Jezebel is not a great example for modern women to follow. Although there's some parts of her story that are relatable, like we're going to find out yesterday when she puts on makeup. I think the only person in the Bible to be described as putting on makeup in an action. There's, there's references to makeup a couple times in the Bible, um, but this is the one where we have someone actually putting it on as part of the story. Um, and her, um, these, uh, her perceived power, which she is the queen, um, should not be mistaken for goodness. Um, if, if women and people who have historically been repressed are able to throw off those yokes and, um, and shackles of the patriarchy, if they're able to break those glass ceilings and even the stained glass ceilings of our world, um, we, should, we should celebrate them and applaud and, and honor them as long as they're doing good. Um, if they're doing those things and oppressing more people, then that's not a good thing. And I hope that is easily seen in the story of Jezebel. Her... Um, her drive is always for her own self uh, and her own goals, which sometimes include Ahab and sometimes just include herself. She has set up the situation where falsely accusing someone of a crime, having them executed by stoning, that is not the kind of empowerment that I think is a good example for, for people today. Um, really, she has Naboth lynched in sort of the classical definition of that term. Um, to falsely accuse someone of a crime they didn't do. By the time they're able to gather any kind of defense or explanation, it's too late. The trial's already been done. It's a drumhead trial in many ways, and it's over. And the guy's executed before anybody can sort of walk in and say, excuse me, there seems to be a problem here. And this is exactly what Jezebel does with the assistance of Ahab. But it was her idea from the very beginning. And so this prophecy is uh, harsh, but it prompts in Ahab a repentance, a kind of repentance. 
Um, he tears his clothes, puts sackcloth on. It's burlap bags, basically. The opposite of what a king would wear. He lays about in the street. Um, this very visual representation of his repentance is pretty hard to ignore when the king is laying in the street in sackcloth and ashes dejectedly with his clothes torn. Um, this is a powerful symbol of repentance. And um, it's kind of funny how this last bit is communicated. There's Ahab in the streets repenting publicly. Um, don't really know what Jezebel is up to. I don't think she approves of this activity. But um, it says, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah, the Tishbite, and it's sort of like gossip. The Lord says to Elijah in this word, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I won't bring disaster in his days. I'll bring it in his son's days. Uh, it's, it's really something how the Lord is sort of like a... Um, like gossiping to Elijah. Have you heard? Like Elijah hadn't heard. I mean, this is the king of Israel and Elijah's very closely connected to everything Ahab does um, because Ahab is still trying to kill him. Uh, He's like, have you heard? So I see from this that God notices. God notices even the the, um, false repentances of people. Um, He notices the actions of people. Um, God notices everything about us. Um, that prayer that we pray in the beginning of our service, um, to you, no secrets are hid. God knows everything, everything about us. And the, the sooner we face that truth, the better. As old Soren Kierkegaard said, the, face the truth of who you are, because that changes who you are. You can face the reality of your life with all the things that are part of it, the good and the things that are not so good and the things that we wish were different. We can embrace those things and look at them uh, square in the face and say, yeah, that's me. Um, I think this is the relationship God really wants. God doesn't need Ahab to be perfect. God doesn't need Ahab to be perfect. God needs him to be in relationship. And in relationship with God means that when we fall, we repent and we rise up. And that's what Ahab is given the chance to do. So Ahab gets like three years from this. He gets like three good years from this event. Um, And we can be thankful for that. Um, And also see it as an example of how quickly we forget the goodness of God, um, even when it's offered to us after doing something terrible. Amen. And the creed is on page 96. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Lord be with you, and also with you. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Suffrages B on page 98. Save your people, Lord, and bless your inheritance. Govern and uphold them now and always. Day by day we bless you. We praise your name forever. Lord, keep us from all sin today. Have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy. Lord, show us your love and mercy, for we put our trust in you. In you, Lord, is our hope, and we shall never hope in vain. Today, the Anglican Communion, our church commemorates Holy Cross Day. This is a a feast day that commemorates the cross in a slightly different way than Good Friday does. Good Friday is sort of the day that we commemorate Jesus' death. We reflect on that, and we uh, reflect on it both intellectually and emotionally and physically. Um, Anglicans throughout our history have always held the cross in reverence um, as a symbol. A symbol, as I've always said, is a sign that points to a deeper reality. And through that sign, through that symbol, you can see something that you can't see any other way. And the cross is one of those symbols um, that has that kind of resonance over time. Uh, Certainly the cross has been used to do terrible things to people um, as a symbol for crusading movements, as a symbol for uh, religious repression, even the inquisitions and other things that have hurt people's lives have been antithetical to the spirit of Christ who died on the cross. We remember that the cross was a Roman torture device. Many who were crucified were not executed on crosses. They were taken down after they sort of learned their lesson. Um, And yet many were executed by crucifixion. The word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion um, as one of the most painful ways to die. Um, Its origins lie in Phoenician Uh, torture techniques and maybe even Persian impalings um, which you find in the book of Esther but it was perfected by the Romans and is and becomes a symbol of Christianity Uh, early Christians um, hard to know what they would have felt about the cross but it emerges uh, pretty early on as a symbol the first depiction of Jesus in art is um, a graffiti Um, graffiti is Uh, writing on walls, grapho to write in Greek, and uh, like the stuff you write on a wall. This is the first internet posting, Twitter posts, Facebook posts that people did. They would write stuff about politicians on walls or whatever. People wake up in the morning and say, "Who, who did this? And the guy that wrote it is long gone. And the first depiction of Jesus we have archaeologically still today is a graffiti. It was carved into stone on the side of a building in Rome, and it's a, it's a carving of an ass, a donkey, a donkey's head with the body of a man, and he's being crucified. This animal man is being crucified. And there's a guy looking up at the cross, and in the, the guy in the caption says, Alex Menemas, the guy looking at the cross, worships his God. Alex Menemas worships his God. And you can see this little Christian worshiping his God, who has the head of an ass, who's being crucified. This is how Romans would have seen the 
worship around Jesus in that early part of Christianity. What a, what a bunch of fools to worship a guy who was crucified. The cross becomes more significant throughout time as Christians, as Roman crucifixion dies out. It is under the reign of Christian emperors that they abolish the practice of crucifixion. Um, and you can see why. Um, if your savior died on a cross, maybe you shouldn't do that to other people. <laughs> That's pretty basic logic. And yet today we still persist with a death penalty, which we think is more humane than crucifixion, but in fact is, a very, is very similar to what um, the Romans did. We still put people in the shape of a cross on those beds that we inject them with lethal poison. They're still in the shape of a cross. And so this holiday, Holy Day, Holy Cross Day, commemorates um, the finding of the true cross, a piece of the true cross by Helena. Helena is the mother of Constantine. Constantine's uh, parents were, uh, well, Constantine's father was a Roman soldier. Uh, He was stationed around different parts of the emperor, and he had his son, Constantine. He's not, I think there's other Constantines, um, but he's called the one we know as Constantine. Uh, He has a son named Constantine with, with his mother, with his wife, Helena, and then he divorces her. So he can marry up into a noble Roman family, which will eventually secure him the spot as, the, as one of the emperors of Rome. So Constantine's uh, parents' childhood was radically shifted by his father's divorce, so he could marry this, um, this well-connected uh, patrician woman in Rome. So Constantine's raised by Helena, his, his single mother, who uh, never remarries. But um, eventually, as Roman politics sorts itself out, Constantine becomes emperor. And one of the first things he does is he sends his mother to the Holy Land, to the land of Palestine. It's called Palestine at that point, a Roman province named after the uh, Philistines, the Palestinians, the, the, the Philistines that live there. It's a, a Latin corruption of Philistine and Palestine. And so she, he sends her there and she identifies based on uh, buildings that are still standing uh, there in the Holy Land, and some other ruined churches that are now abandoned, the places where significant events in the life of Jesus happen. If you go to the Holy Land today, you're going on Helena's tour. You're going pretty much on the, to the places where St. Helena, Constantine's mother, chose and said, this is probably where the feeding of the 5,000 happened. This is probably where Jesus was crucified, based on the stuff that was still around in the 4th century. Lots of stuff has happened in the Holy Land since then, but those places still endure. She finds a piece of the true cross and builds the Church of the Holy Sepulcher over the site of the crucifixion and the, the, uh, the, the tomb of Jesus where he's resurrected from. These things are not without controversy, of course. Parts of the true cross are taken to Constantinople to preserve that city in case of attack. Uh, some are left in Jerusalem. When, the, when Jerusalem is, uh, falls again to the Persians, uh, they take the piece of the true cross back to Persia, and then the, uh, the Byzantines get the piece of the true cross back. A piece of the true cross is discovered during the Crusades in Jerusalem and becomes a symbol for um, the Crusaders. Then that piece is captured. Um, so these pieces of the true cross are circulating around. Uh, Martin Luther, who was one of his main 
Crusades, if you will, was against the collection of relics and the veneration of relics. He joked that if you gathered all the pieces of the true cross into one pile, you, you could build Noah's Ark with it. Um, you know, there's a lot of pieces of the true cross floating around. But I think the, the idea was solid in the beginning to say this was where Jesus died, and this is how Jesus died, and this is how you might die as a Christian. Jesus said that unless you take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my follower. Um, and so the true cross, the, tr- the cross of Jesus, is always a symbol for us, a reminder for, uh, of, uh, for us of what the Christian life really is all about. It is about a life of self-sacrifice. It is about a life of love. It is about a life of, of love for others. And it's a life of reflecting on this intense suffering of Jesus on the cross so that our suffering uh, is no longer isolated from the suffering of God. But our suffering is not, al- we are not alone in our suffering. We are part of God in the most connected way we can imagine um, when we meditate on the cross. So we thank you for your cross, O oh God, that you've drawn the whole world to yourself. If you have a cross handy, I invite you to hold it um, as, you, as we pray this prayer. Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, was lifted high upon the cross that he might draw the whole world to himself, mercifully grant that we, who glory in the mystery of our redemption, may have grace to take up our cross and follow him, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen.